0: Welcome to Dermalogs, a podcast made possible by a grant from AbbVie through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program.
1: Hi, welcome to Dermalogs, Season 3. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Purdy. For those of you new to this podcast, I'm a dermatologist who works in Halifax, full-time academic at Dalhousie University. As residents, you don't always get a chance to hear from dermatologists outside your centre, and this podcast is designed to change some of that. The goal of this series is to help you, the dermatology residents, get answers from expert dermatologists across the country to some of your burning questions on key areas of our practice. And one of those experts is Dr. Gita Yadav. Gita is the founder of Skin Science Dermatology in Toronto. She also lectures at the University of Toronto and is a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons and the American Academy of Dermatology, She's here to share with us some of what she's learned about setting up her own practice. Gita, welcome. Hi,
0: Carrie. Thank
1: you so much for having me on this podcast. I'm really excited. Well, I'm really glad that you could join me. When the topic of how to set up a practice and questions were coming up from residents saying, well, you should do one on starting a practice, I thought to myself, you know, who started a practice recently that's successful, that's easy to talk to, and who's going to share some of her insights, and you immediately came to mind. So I really appreciate you joining me tonight.
0: Thank you. That's a generous compliment. I appreciate it. (laughs) It's true. So (laughs) I do
1: want to get into some of the details um, with respect to setting up a practice. But first, I think one of the places I wanted to jump off was just to say, okay, so you're, you're finished residency, you're looking to kind of start on your own, What do you think were some of the biggest challenges that you faced before you started a practice? Like, was it not having information about how to start a practice or was it sort of the real nuts and bolts of it um, or other? I
0: think that is probably a question that everybody contemplates when they graduate. And I think there's a bunch that goes into it. You know, people have to figure out what kind of practice they want. And if they do want to work in the community, then it is about, do you work in somebody else's practice or do you start up your own? So I worked full-time at Women's College Hospital for three years in full-time academic practice before I opened up my own. And I really enjoyed it and I love teaching. And there's a bunch of elements about academic dermatology that really appealed to me. And that's why I wanted that kind of a job uh, at first. Um, I think what I came to realize about myself, and it's what I often tell people, Uh, still today is every job sort of has its bad days or down days or what have you. And you do have to ask yourself what kind of person you are in terms of how you want to take those bad days. So when you run your own practice, those days are going to be stressful. And when you work in a hospital, those days are going to be frustrating. So are you the kind of person that deals better with frustration or with stress? And I think that's like a good bifurcation point to kind of decide (laughs) what kind of work environment you think you'll thrive in and where you think you'll be the most successful. And, you know, and then I think after that, what comes naturally is sort of kind of figuring out, are you willing to take a big risk? Because there is risk in setting up Mm -hmm. your own practice. Uh, Or would you like to be a bit more cautious and sort of see how other people have done it and that you can learn by working in in other practices and kind of figuring out what kind of style you want to have, you know, as you kind of grow into your profession?
1: So it's really interesting that you say that. And I, I've actually had the opposite journey because I started practice for 10 years in the community with just a very part-time academic and then sort of moved full-time this January. And uh, I think you're spot on, you know, would you rather be stressed with autonomy or frustrated um, with lack of autonomy? And I do think there's pros and cons to, to both that we could speak about later, but uh, I think that's really spot on and, and a good decision point right from the get-go for residents to consider. Now... Let's take a question from a dermatology resident.
0: You've reached the world headquarters of the Dermalogs podcast. Hi, Dr. Yadav. My name is Miriam Safwan. I'm a resident at Montreal University. When you made a decision to start your practice, what were the factors that led you to decide to open one on your own versus doing it with other dermatologists? Thank you. So I uh, I used to work one day a week when I was full-time academic in uh, practices of some of our colleagues, and uh, enjoyed seeing different practice styles. And I think when I kind of reached that tipping point about the style of work I preferred, uh, it was sort of serendipitous or good fortune, a good opportunity that a colleague of ours was uh, retiring on the mm-hmm. east end of Toronto. And so they were sort of leaving their practice. I didn't end up you know, uh, purchasing a practice, it's sort of hard to kind of imagine how that works in this Mm -hmm. day and age um, for a variety of reasons. But what it did give me was an opportunity to be in a location that was really familiar to an existing referral base. Mm -hmm. And also then to sort of uh, be able to kind of grandfather in a bunch of also cosmetic patients, which kind of fundamentally helped to pay all that overhead Mm -hmm. and keep that practice thriving. And so I had a really nice blended practice to kind of open up to when I first started. And that, I think, made that transition or that, that risk feel a little bit lower uh, in my setting. So, you know, thinking about the
1: residents that would be listening, do you think that it's a good time to do, I mean, COVID has kind of thrown a wrench into everybody's plans, but, you know, ideally, community-based um, electives during residency? Or do you think you really gained more experience in seeing the difference once you were out in practice?
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a good way to kind of think about it. I think both. You know, when we were kind of chatting a little bit about this earlier and about the different dimensions of what it means to have your own practice, there's a bunch that you learn by just seeing how other people right. do it, sort yeah. of. And and there's things that you'll never kind of really see the full side of when you're an associate in another practice, like what are the mechanics behind a point of sale terminal and that relationship, and how non-OHIP money is collected and how it's processed, and you know right. all that all that kind of stuff. But on the other hand, you will get to see um, different styles of electronic health records. So what kind of what what suits you and your practice style? You'll start to see different people's practice styles, how they um, book follow ups, the kind of patients they see, the complexity of the patients they see, the uh, challenges of seeing some of those. Uh, diseases in the community, for example, not having access to a full suite of all lab tests all the time for every patient. Some people will have to pay for that kind of testing in the community. So there's a bunch of nuances to practicing in the community that I think you can get by by working in other people's practices. And also even the kind of staff and how people organize mm-hmm. their staff to support you. So you know, how many rooms do you like to work out of? How efficient are you? Um you know, there's a whole bunch of those uh, intangibles that I think you can get by just fundamentally being out there, whether it's doing an elective or as an associate. But I do think that having a little bit of that grounding experience is is informative for when you go and make all those decisions, like what EMR are you going to buy? How big is your space going to be? Do you own it? Do you lease it? What's your point of sale, point, point of sale for nano hit payments going to look like? Do you want a nurse to support you? You know, I mean, it's just an endless series of questions that stem from that. What
1: you've basically done there is run through all the different things that I think we we should talk about in a little bit more depth. So there (laughs) you just like made your own objectives uh, for the podcast. So I do. I appreciate that. Um, But so, yeah, let's start. So and uh, what I was going to say, too, is I think that that opportunity to to work or to locum or to be associate or whatever is a really great learning opportunity for for residents and early staff to get a sense of where they want to fit. I mean, that changes as both of us can attest to, you know, sometimes what you start out with is not where you end up a few years in. Um
0: absolutely. And there's also the clinical experience of being the final decision maker. Mm-hmm. And that is something that I think probably is underrated because we quickly kind of grow accustomed to our own autonomy and our own decision making <laughs> abilities. But, you know, you remember that stress of being fresh out of residency and sort of really wanting your colleagues around you. Because as a resident, you always have people around you. You always have people to ask advice from. And suddenly, if you're on your own and you don't have that, it's a pretty big safety net that you feel like you're losing. And so I think that's one thing a lot of associates, you know, really appreciate at the beginning is being able to bounce an idea off people. And sometimes it isn't even your diagnostic ability. It's like, how do you handle a difficult patient, you know, in the real world? A thousand percent.
1: Yeah. And and I find um, I started in a group practice with uh, Rob Tremaine and Mike Reardon, who really just um, were so invaluable in those day to day things or like billing questions or you know, simple things like how do you tell a person like nothing's wrong with them, but you don't really have a name for it kind of things, which like (laughs) I never thought of as a resident. So um, that's definitely a pro for group practice early on. And then once you do feel more comfortable, then you don't have that you don't sort of rely on that crutch. So let's actually take another question from one of the residents right now.
0: Hi, Dr. Yadav. My name is François, and I'm one of the residents at McGill University. My question for you is, how do you decide what kind of space allotment you needed for your
1: practice? How many rooms you needed, and did you lease or did you buy your space?
0: I think for me, because I was kind of assuming another person's space, who was a dermatologist previously, it was a fairly... Easy transition. I did invest money in renovating that space, even though I didn't own it, because I felt like I, I was going to spend so much time in my practice, and I needed my the flow to work for me. Mm-hmm. So that was a choice I made. You know, we have a lot of colleagues who have also opened up practices in um, the greater Toronto area, and I think there's a blend of choices, you know, between buying or or leasing a space. Um, I think it depends on the city you live in, like Mm -hmm. the cost of real estate, like what kind of debt load you have when you first graduate. Your income, I think, rapidly will scale as Mm -hmm. you get more comfortable and more efficient at practice. And so you may have a bit more capital to spend a few years in than you would right when you fresh graduate. So I don't think there's like a rush to kind of necessarily make that decision. It also helps you decide what kind of part of town you want to practice in or the neighborhood. Because I do think the patient populations change based on where you practice. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think a bunch of those factors come into play. Certainly the, the, also the, I think the scale of the practice you want, like, if you think about it, you know, let me, let me think about my current space. So I, I operate out of about 1300 square feet and so I have four clinical rooms and I have a device room in the back and I have my front area for my staff and waiting room. And I've been doing this for about four years now in the community, and I'm out of space now. And you talk to anybody who's done a recent renovation, and they'll say, oh, we're already too big for that space. So I think the one nice thing about our profession is you can probably feel fairly secured about a trajectory of growth Mm -hmm. that should you want to take on more... Dimensions to your practice, you know, cosmetics, medical, phototherapy, patch testing, surgical stuff, you know, wh- whatever. There's a there's something you can do with the space. So so I think more space is better if you can get it, but it's costly depending on where yeah. you live.
1: And to your point, you know, I think it does matter where you are, and then other pieces of infor- information for patient, you know. So um, I don't know in terms of your practice, but I know the biggest complaint my patients have now that I've moved. From a community practice that had ample free parking, to a hospital-based practice that has excessively expensive and limited parking, but it has but both had good access to transit routes. So you know, I think that probably plays a role, and it, it probably is dependent upon the city as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's incredible how important parking is to people, even if they would spend equivalent amounts in gas. It's sort of <laughs> like. <laughs> Just putting it as money for parking really, really bothers people. And I think parking and waiting. So even Mm -hmm. if you have the nicest person in the world, if they end up waiting to see you for you know, over an hour, I have like tipping points that I can just sense in my own practice. Like once we start getting to 30 to 45 minutes behind, I know I'm heading into unknown territory in terms of I was just going to ask like,
1: where's your, (laughs) because at at the 15 minute mark, when I was in my own practice, I would get kind of antsy. Now that I'm with residents, I have to accept that I'm usually 45 minutes, uh, uh, delayed, <laughs> which is extremely uncomfortable. Oh.
0: Mm. I know. I mean, it's hard, and it's hard in this day and age to kind of keep it all together. But and that's the stress of it, right? Like you've mm-hmm. got this this machine that you are both you are the machine and you're the operator of that machine. True. And that's that's a, that's a, a, a two really big roles to play when you run and own a practice.
1: Absolutely. Now, before we move on from space, I do want to just talk about room setup. And so um, do you have are your clinical rooms all sort of set up exactly the same? Do you have, you know, room one is for blah, blah, blah. Um, I know from an efficiency perspective, sometimes people have them set up exactly the same. But I, I know that obviously, with floor plans, things can be a bit different. But A, are your rooms all set up the same? And B, the stuff that's in it, Actually, we'll talk about that in a minute. So, are your rooms all the same? <laughs> Simple question. <laughs> uh,
0: similar, similar, and no. And it's a good question because I've seen again. Uh, you know, I spent I spent some time visiting a lot of my colleagues in their practices, mm-hmm. even if I didn't work there. So that may be another piece of advice I would give people. There are a lot of generous. Colleagues out there who, if you just ask them if you can come and tour their space, they would be happy to let you show you around. And if they have a big enough practice, they may even have like an office manager who'd have more Mm. time to kind of show you around. And I always try to... You know, I really believe what goes around comes around in terms of that uh collegiality. And so, um, you know, I'm sure you can send a box of chocolates, send some flowers, you know, like yeah. find a nice way to say thank you to your <laughs> colleague who's been generous with their time and their space. But but I would say so for me, and what's worked for me is my clinical rooms are set up similarly. I also do some of my cosmetic injections in two of those rooms. So they have a okay. slightly different chair, um, so that I can inject more easily in them. And then I have two rooms that have the standard like solid wad of metal table you know for the from really comfortable Denmark. one that's easy for patients yeah. to get on not at it's all it's like a tank you know what i mean it can handle any weight to kind of thing yeah. so um that just works well for me for so that i always have something reclined so people can lay down on it and i can do procedures on the scalp and stuff like that but um one thing that i love uh that i picked like this is not my idea but i i have pre um pre established procedure trays for mm. shave punch, excision, um, and my cosmetic stuff and they're color coded and they're already set up and my staff kind of preps them. So I literally, when I want to do a biopsy, I just have to, like pop the right tray open and everything is there for Grab me. It, there and it's so much, it's so, it, again, it's like, you're just constantly trying to solve these micro efficiencies, because if you think about it, like I remember when I was pregnant and practicing and every single patient would be like, how far along are you? And is it a boy or a girl? And is it your first? And that extra one minute in every single room for 60 patients was an extra hour to my day. Yes. And so, so you try to find these little moments where you can make yourself faster and it really does add up and it's worth doing, you know, it's a bit of a pain to set up those flow, uh, that mm-hmm. flow at the beginning, but it, I think it's really worthwhile doing and the rooms are totally critical to that
1: yeah I totally agree now thinking about you mentioned beds and chairs which I do think are important are those um did you purchase those from the your predecessor or did you go out and source those yourself what kind of um I, like I inherited like a big old you know tank um in my private office so I didn't even have to do anything <laughs> there but <laughs> any any chair purchasing tips <laughs>
0: I mean, the tanks are handy because they're kind of sturdy and they're fairly low cost compared to anything with hydraulics or Mm -hmm. electronics that are going to be mobile. For injecting, it's really nice to have um, a chair that is programmable. Um, I know when uh, when some of our colleagues set up um, a Moe's clinic in the community here in downtown Toronto, um like Christian Murray came to my office to kind of see the kind of bed chairs that I had and right. they're from like a massage table company. Okay. Um yeah, and they and and I'd seen them in a lot of other practices. Uh you know, I think the brand is like Silhouette Tone and I I don't know. I mean, I negotiated to be like, well, I'll buy two, you know, if you <laughs> with if this you deal. Rate. Yeah, exactly. But I think um I think it really depends on what what you need. Now, I found those chairs, and I was saying it to Christian. Like, I find them a little. I'm not tall enough for them to okay. inject with totally comfortably. So, I think, um, like, I'm going to buy new chairs in my next iteration that have a smaller footprint. And uh, are, are a little bit more ergonomic for, for my, right, you know, physique, so to speak. Yes. So I think it is important to see these things in real life because they do matter. But at the same time, if you're kind of constantly fudging with something that really looks like a chair, mm-hmm. it's really hard to do procedures that require someone to be laying down, you know, and flat. And so it is kind of nice if you can have that optionality mm-hmm. um, uh, to think about the different things you're going to want to do. On the other hand, like where that thing fits in the room, it you might be limited to the the layout, but ideally you want to be able to get around to all sides if you can, you know, Mm -hmm. or have the chair be able to recline and have room to do that. If it's, um, they're just the things you, you just don't, you'd kind of take for granted until you're actually practicing and you're kind of stuck in a corner and you're like, how do I do that? (laughs) Excellent point. Or like, how do I do this? Uh, you know,
1: female genital exam and I'm stuck in the, a corner the other way. So, yeah, like absolutely. a chair is
0: not good for that. You know, no, you really yes. do need those tables. You need the bed. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, so the other thing is, um you talked a little bit about sort of, and this is maybe not space related, but you did talk about having trays set up. And I always had procedure bags set up and sort of some lidocaine drawn up uh, each Monday. Um, in terms of purchasing items, so, you know, scalpels or razor blades or forceps or whatever, did you use a traditional medical supplier in GTA? What did you do to, to do that kind of stuff?
0: So I remember when I started and it's, I think it, I've got to imagine it's similar for everyone, right? Because you sort of feel like there's all these big upfront fixed costs and investments. Mm-hmm. You're, you got to buy computers for every room if that's how you're going to, you know, mm-hmm. do your clinic. And, and there's just so much setup at the beginning. And so I remember, you know, And anybody's welcome to email me if they want this. I have like my equipment supply sheet from Medical Mart, (laughs) you know, that's like got every item number and every little thing. And so I I was like, I want to know I'm going to order again. I want to price. And I price compared between Medical Mart. And I looked at, um, uh, I can't even remember, but other medical, traditional medical suppliers, dental suppliers. And I was really kind of like, oh, well that's $1 cheaper. And so I should go there. (laughs) And you know, and the amount of time I sort of spent. And then I realized, oh, these item numbers actually change. And then there's inflation. And then Mm -hmm. sometimes they just change the price on you and you would never know it because you're buying so many different things. And you kind of realize what a pain it is to keep reordering gauze every couple of months that you should just buy a lot of it at the beginning. And yeah, you know, you get to a place where you start just having and again, it's a partly about space, right? Like, where are you mm-hmm. going to store all those caddy exactly. if you buy a year's supply in advance? So, you yeah. know, you start to kind of loosen up a little bit, I think, but it is important to kind of think through the stuff you're going to need and to track it somehow if you're going to be organized about it, you know, and then to kind of predict what you're going to spend. But I think, like, ultimately, there's not, like, massive savings to necessarily be had on that Shopping stuff. Around. like. Yeah, like it takes a lot of time to do that. You're like, oh, three cents cheaper for those alcohol. Then I guess, yeah, then I guess you
1: have to re- <laughs> figure out what your time is worth, which maybe is more than the, the three cents saving. Um, <laughs> yeah. I have to say I was I was very surprised at how relatively little surgical instruments cost when I when I went out to buy them. I was like, oh, yeah, it's not like I mean. You can get you know the real nice ones, but I I was uh, I was yeah. pleasantly surprised. I guess I thought they were all going to be hundreds of dollars, but same,
0: you know. And it does add up, but it's not like you buy those things every day. No. I think what I would say that people should be mindful of is like buy one of a few different things. so You can decide what you like because all the brands are different. The length is different. You may not realize how it fits in your hand. You may not realize what you were used to in the practice mm. that you used to work at or wherever you trained. And, uh, like I bought these needle drivers that had these built in scissors and I thought they were so cool. And sometimes they are, but sometimes they also caught uh, my suture accidentally right. while I'm halfway <laughs> doing through. something. Yeah. yeah. So uh, like, just I, you know, a bit torn, but I have a handful yeah. of them now, you know, so it's good to kind of like try out the different, um, needle drivers, try out different adsense. They are different in quality and you may kind of realize quickly that something's dull more easily or the forceps don't, they don't pick up as well mm-hmm. after a few uses.
1: Yeah. That And, you know, it's funny because I went out and bought all these scalpel handles and 15 blades and da 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 And then anyway, after about a year, I was like, forget this. And then I just bought, you know, razor blades and I just scooped things out with a shave. Um, Same. And that was new. So that's the other piece. Do you have, do you have cautery like, do you have cautery in each room or?
0: Yeah. I mean, I'd say that's the one thing that I, I really enjoy having in each room, mm-hmm. you know, because again, if you've got a blended practice for cosmetic and medical and, you know, some people have a procedure area. I personally don't find that as efficient because then I'd have to move the patient and all their things. And in this era of COVID, you know, there's just, it's just easier to do everything in the room that they're in. So having cautery allows me to like, take it a milia, you know, burn off Mm -hmm. a skin tag or like, there's all kinds of little things that you can do. And so I think cautery, you know, cautery and liquid nitrogen are like the tools of our trade in a way that you can't even, you can't undersell it in that, you know, they may not be expensive to use or to maintain. And we, you know, we, we charge for those services more than they necessarily cost us in terms of supply. But like the skill to me is in the diagnosis. And that's like difficult to quantify, like to be able to say, this is how you treat this. It's not just the treatment itself. And so I think being able to own those kinds of treatments and do them well and to, um, uh, I think you can deliver your patients a lot of satisfaction. And I think, you know, it's like a, a relatively low effort on our part, you know, to kind of provide that kind of service sometimes. And I think that's a nice blend and you need those breaks in your practice. So totally. Yeah, I'm a big fan of cottery in every room
1: when I moved to the hospital full time, there was only cautery in one room. And I was like, what? I couldn't deal with it. <laughs> so I, I, I basically forced the hospital to order like seven more cauteries that every room had one because I, I wasn't yeah. in the habit of like, okay, get all your stuff, move to the room. So uh, yeah, I appreciate that. And I also think, you know, those cryac machines or whatever, canisters, I probably Brand. shouldn't, you know, yeah. like, uh, unbranded, uh, canisters of liquid <laughs> nitrogen um you know i know they're 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 those surprised me with their costs actually so i was i was yeah. less pleasantly surprised at how expensive those babies are you know 1500 1800 2500 and sadly i find after a few years they all get a bit frosty and the seal breaks but yeah uh, but they're invaluable to me i don't i use the the gun i maybe you're a q-tip person i'm not sure but no. you're a gun, gun. Yeah.
0: all gun yeah I think that's kind of, again, part of our claim to fame. You know, I think we, you know, using the gun is sort Get of the gun. a dermatologist <laughs> signature kind of thing. It's like, uh, but, you know, so yes, yeah, so, I, I mean, I started with one because again, they're expensive. And then I realized, especially I hired a nurse this year and that she can do some of those treatments mm-hmm. uh, for me. And so having two ready to go has been really helpful. But again, you can kind of scale up, so to speak, right. as you realize what you need. But I do think in the rooms... You know, I've got gloves on the wall. I've got as much stuff off the table as I can. I've got gloves on the wall. I've got a sharps container in each room. I've got cautery on the wall. I have a blade flask in every room. Those things take forever before you fill them up, in, at uh, least yes. the way I practice. Yeah. And they're really handy and safe. And so... Um, you know, I think the other thing that I keep in the rooms are procedure sheets, mm-hmm. and this stuff is sort of accumulating over time, and I've probably got to find a way to just generate it out of my EMR and on a printer in the room, but I do have pre-printed consent forms, post-procedure care, um, you know, diagrams if I need them to mark something up. So I keep a lot of that in the room. Mm-hmm. Um as well. And I have a place for them. So it's kind of organized. And then like the the CDA, ABCDE handouts, like, you know, (laughs) you need to have (laughs) some (laughs) educational stuff to kind of quickly give to people. I know. Those are amazing. And
1: giving things, you know, because I I think people probably listen to half of what we say while we're talking to them. So I I agree. It's really nice to have those little handouts um, with the pertinent information. And it just sort of Helps the patient, helps you, um, which is great. Now, yeah, this... you want it
0: accessible, is the point, so that you can kind of.
1: Exactly, like grab it, boom. Now, yeah. I when we were talking about the liquid nitrogen, it made me think too of like liquid nitrogen supplier and how often do you get liquid nitrogen delivered to your office? We were like on a, a sort of a weekly to bi-weekly, like in, in our giant canister when I was in private practice, but...
0: Yeah, and probably because you had so many derms working there. Um, when it was When it's just me, I have somebody come once a month and we have a big tank and the seal seems to be pretty good. And yeah. so... I think there's some evaporation but for the most part they're able to top it up once a month and we have enough to kind of get get through the month
1: yeah okay cool and then the other thing that made me think before we move on from room and space is sterilization um and so oh, there's yeah. you know there's different ways you can sterilize and machines and packs or not packs what do you tend to use in your practice
0: yeah i mean i think that there's these setup issues that are super important on the outset of of starting your practice and there are these big fixed costs like buy or rent a liquid nitrogen tank like you must have an autoclave you Mm -hmm. need an ultrasonic machine to Mm -hmm. be able to clean your instruments there are courses you can take to certify your staff um on how to use this stuff and how to make sure it's being done right and there are variations in how people do it Mm -hmm. uh for sure Uh, like nuances to it, uh, but you are responsible for all that equipment and there's a real standard for how you're supposed to do it. So, you know, that's important for when you start up your own practice. Like no one will tell you that. exactly. You have to kind of figure that out, you know? Um, (laughs) You're like, oh, right, these need to get cleaned. Uh, Totally. Like, you know, doing the, I I think it's called like the biologic sampling. Like, you know, I mean, there is like, there are real protocols there. So you have to be able to figure that out before Mm -hmm. you open up your own practice. Um, So... uh, for for me i i remember being a bit spoiled and i love the hospital and these pre-prep trays and the whole things were autoclaved and lovely blue disposable paper when you unwrap them and the problem is is that size of stuff usually doesn't fit in an office size autoclave, and so we tend to use the packs because they're um efficient and easy there are rules around how those things are autoclaved and so um it's kind of annoying to have to open up a bunch of them, but really there should only be one instrument per pack. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and the instruments, because they're not supposed to be touching each other overlapping and they're, you know, like needle drivers have to be open when you autoclave them. So there's a bunch of little rules about how that stuff gets taken care of. So we just use the packs because it's easier. Yeah. I tried the paper and then the tape that would turn little diagonal stripes whenever it was autoclaved properly. And it was like watching my staff do arts and crafts in the back room trying to like (laughs) fold all this stuff up. And again, it's all about time, right? Like it's not an efficient use of time. So I think the packs are easy and they're fairly inexpensive in the grand scheme of things. Exactly,
1: and then you know um, which have been processed and which haven't with their little, little strip.
0: Yeah, totally. And it's really important. Like there are a bunch of nuances and I think some people have been in practice for a long time and they don't realize it until like they get an audit, you know, or somebody coming through their office, but those things have to be date stamped. They need to have an expiry time on them. Like there's, you know, who's the initials of the person that processed it? There's logs in the back. Like there's a lot of stuff around that whole instrument maintenance. It's all manageable, but it's got to be organized. There's got to be a system to do it properly.
1: Yeah. Excellent points. Okay. So now we've kind of talked about space and obviously people would have different questions that, that would probably generate from that. But I think at a very basic level, that's that's good. Um, I want to maybe shift before we go over to, to staff and billing and things like that, just to talk a little bit about EMR selection. I'm assuming you use an EMR. How did you make that decision and w- in which you use, if you don't mind saying?
0: Yeah. No, I don't mind. I don't mind sharing that at all. And I think that's a really uh, important and thoughtful, thoughtful question with no good answer. I really do feel like choosing an EMR is like choosing your own religion. (laughs) and There's no right answer. Fair, yeah. Um, it's uh, it's or it's like sleep training with a kid. Like, what's the right answer? You know. <laughs> no, it
1: was right it answer. was more painful to sleep train my kid than to kids <laughs> than to uh, select an EMR. But I get where you're going with that.
0: <laughs> um, so, so you know, I use PS Suites by hey. Telus because I personally am pretty fast with the keyboard and I like shortcuts. And uh, so it's uh, there's a lot of short keys and they're fast. So mm-hmm. I think I'm pretty fast with my EMR. Um, whereas I think something like a Curo, I always think about it more as something that you, requires a lot of clicks. And so that inevitably takes more time with a mouse. Like if you've ever seen anybody that's really good at Excel, they never use a mouse. It's all short keys and that's fast. And so again, I like it because of my keyboard stuff, but you have to pick the EMR that works for you. And there's a bunch of different nuances to an EMR, I think, that are worth considering. So um, how you like to navigate information, Mm -hmm. I think, um, where are you going to track some of your non OHIP billing? Mm -hmm. So some people use their EMRs as a place to generate invoices, we don't. Mm -hmm. I use a third party, I use Square to do my payment processing. I think the other thing you have to think about is images. So how are you going to upload and take images? And each of those EMRs have different functionality around it. And then those EMRs are going to charge you differently based on the data that they um, use to store your images. So some of them may charge you for that extra space. Um, I think the other thing to consider is how uh, you may want to practice telederm or telemedicine because, again, the functionality is different. I prefer phone calls and photos. Uh, But if you want to do video, you know, some of those interfaces exist better within a system. And lastly, how you think you're going to collect data from patients. So forms and, um, you know, like an intake form or uh, like, how do you want patients standardized information to be inputted into your chart? Uh, And maybe that's actually not last because I think it's also the EMR you choose, you need to make sure... Uh, that you understand how your billing is going to be processed. So can you do it through your EMR or is it going to have to be through third party? Um, How the lab data is going to enter from labs? Like, do you want it to come in electronically? Is it going to have to be scanned in by paper? I mean, I think that off the top of my head, those are a bunch of different dimensions to really consider in terms of the functionality of your EMR and what you choose. And each province, as you say, has different approved EMRs and what that means, you know, varies. Uh, I dislike all EMRs generally, though. Yeah, so it's a real thing. Yeah, I th- <laughs>
1: and I think you know different props. So in Nova Scotia, there's you know, adoption uh, of Scotia has an EMR utilization grant and setup grant, and so for new people starting out practice, they can leverage that grant usually to get them fully set up. And then to your point, you do have to you know if you're on EMR and you're using it, uh, do you want a computer in every room? Yes. uh you know what? How do you want that to to look? You know laptop, desktop tower, and that all, you know, those things have to be upgraded from time to time too. So I think those are all things you don't think about. And now I no longer have to think about at the hospital where we use uh, paper, you know, and pens. <laughs> okay. I actually did force them to let me bring my, uh, uh, my Acuro just for, you know, record keeping purposes, but, uh, it doesn't have that same functionality for photographs, um, and uploading yeah. images that I know, uh, the TELUS product does have. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, to varying degrees of, uh, of functionality, even in that. So I think, again, just given the nature of what we do, uh, considering, even if you're not just looking at cosmetics, but uh, understanding how you want before and afters to appear, mm-hmm. is it, it, it's something important to be thoughtful about in terms of your space setup and functionality. Like, you know, TELUS has like an iPad or, or a phone app that you can use and it uploads pretty seamlessly. But it's hard to display those images side by side all the time and to be able to compare them. Whereas like a interface that was really designed for cosmetics would do that a lot better. Right. And you'd be able to recall that information a lot better. Um, I personally... Now have a workflow where we take an image of every single thing we biopsy, and it has been um, it has been enormously helpful. I will say, like we had five specimens that were lost by a lab wow. earlier this year, and it caused me an enormous an enormous amount of stress. And I still haven't gotten a satisfactory answer about the whole thing, but. Being able to see what it looked like before I had taken it off gave me, you know, a bit of understanding about how serious I thought that biopsy really was, you mm-hmm. know, like it was just really helpful to have it. And I think patients too need to be able to see for themselves, oh yeah, it does look better. And so I think for a whole bunch of reasons for what we do, mm-hmm. it's photography is important and thinking about how you want to set that up is a, it's its own kind of, you know, thought process.
1: Now that makes me think about one other thing that before we move on to the billing that I want to talk about, but it is, that is tracking um, specimens. And so do you have, you, I, I think you do. But yes.
0: <laughs> what, All analog. What do you do? Okay. Logbook. Yeah.
1: Log book. Okay. Yeah. I,
0: I've never seen anything better than an analog log book for pathology. And I'll tell you, we now actually have a few log books, which I think are worthwhile so the first is pathology. Mm-hmm. So every time we print a label for our specimen bottles, um, we uh, we have one for the path book. You know, what site was biopsied, what date it was done. And so we always verify that. And since this specimen situation that happened, um, the labs will ask you to sign a log for their purposes. Now we make them sign the log for ours. Like how many bottles did they take that day? Mm-hmm. And they have to initial it uh, so that I'm very clear yeah that that they took those bottles from out of out of the lab and they confirmed that they've done it uh, out yeah. of our clinic story because that
1: is that other piece you know you are you know when you're in the hospital you you pop your specimen into some basket that a porter comes and takes and directly delivers to the lab but you know you need you need a courier usually to to do that um from your office so that's that other piece too Your are there's another set of hands um yeah. Taking. Yeah. yeah. I, no, analog exactly. logbook. I, I agree. You can't beat it. I used to, uh, I guess I still do, put a sticker. I write the date and what I biopsied. And then when it comes back, I check it off yes. in a red pen. And then yes. I cross check that each page is completed by putting an X at the top. And then every couple of weeks I flip back. And if there's a page with without an X, I'll go, uh-oh, and then track that one yes. down. So yes. uh, yeah, can't, can't be underestimated. That's where paper and pen really just, they're the winners. No, There's the winners. no room
0: for error on that. Like if, if there's one thing that my staff understand, there is just no room for error on that pathology stuff. Like the site, the name, like we have a checklist that my staff, when the pathology requisition comes out at the front, cause that's just the way my workflow is set up. Mm-hmm. Every bottle has to be, the name has to be checked. The location has to be checked. Like it's all check, check about, you know, 17 times, because it'll happen. And when it does, it's, it's really devastating, depending on the diagnosis, depending on what you were doing, like, you know, you really want 0% error rate when it comes to the specimen. And you know, the other trick that I have on doing biopsies, especially if you're doing something small or thin, um, I'll show the patient, I'll be like, you know, like I close up the bottle, and I say, Do you want to see it? And then they say, Oh, yeah, sure. And then they hold it while I do my little path form. And then they confirm that they have it because I never want to hear back from the lab that there was no specimen in the bottle. Mm-hmm.
1: Fair. And then I'll be like, "No, you saw it. It was in there. It was, it was there. <laughs> you said <laughs> that was your. Oh goal.
0: my god, that
1: was off me." Um, Okay, so shifting gears here, just you know, it's come up a couple times, just briefly, but thinking about um, billing and and really sort of the the process with which you would bill um, for for Ontario OHIP versus non OHIP or you know whatever provincial payer uh, covered versus non covered, and um, I think more how do you set up your non covered services? You said you you use
0: Square. Yeah. So I was lucky when I started practice that there was sort of a group negotiation with the um, the whole TBCD Facebook group, like the, all the dermatologists mm-hmm. that were in the American and Canadian uh, group. And they had negotiated some good rates for different uh, point of sale services. Okay. And for my purposes, I'm sort of a techie person and I like the analytics that come out on the other side. And mm-hmm. so Square was a nice, easy to use platform for me. And so I was able to negotiate a good rate. It's it's not going to be as good as like a group purchase on a mm. Moneris, but like the data that I get out of it and the workflow and the functionality is just worth it for me on a bunch of levels. Um, I also have like an online store that pairs with Square. And so it tracks both, you know, my inner inventory for the products that we sell, the, you know, payments for all of that stuff. Like it's all in one space. And then at the end of the year, I can look back and I can see metrics to kind of say, Hey, how did uh, how did this brand of skincare perform compared to another? Or what were the big revenue generators and what were mm-hmm. their supply costs? You know, I can see like how many boxes of filler did we order over the year and um, and compare those costs against the revenue for that? Because you know, everything feels good when you when somebody's paying for it, but you don't kind of realize on the supply side or on the time side, you know, what it what it costs you to do it. Right. Um, so I think I like having those kind of metrics it requires that requires sort of a good setup, but that's why I went with a, a point of sale platform that had a bit more sophistication to it. Whereas, you know, the, the things you have to think about are like, if you're going to do, um, something a bit more traditional, like, you know, Moneris or through a bank, there's a, there's the aspect of collecting, the fees you pay when you collect, it's Mm -hmm. also sort of how it integrates to your inventory. So how are you going to track the inventory of stuff in your clinic, whether it's medical supplies, cosmetic supplies, products you're selling, and even just how patients are going to pay when they, so our, we have like portable terminals cause that's how Square works. So we can go in the room and because it, we don't have a private area for people to check out for their cosmetic services, it's nice for them to do it in the room. Right. Uh, and so, and then we kind of book them their follow up in the room. Everything just kind of happens in the room and then they just head straight at the door. And I think for COVID that actually works really nicely. Absolutely.
1: Although we're not talking about this specifically, um, because we're really talking more about the logistics of setting up a practice, but just out of curiosity, you know, do you divide your cosmetic medical time by day, by hour, or do you just sort of have it intermingled throughout? Because I know that's something a lot of residents wonder about in terms of like setting up their own practice.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's, again, I don't know if there's a right answer to this. But the way I've set it up is, Um, and it all depends on how busy you are on, Mm -hmm. on those things, you know, and what you enjoy doing. So right now I, I do phone calls Mm
1: -hmm.
0: on Mondays. And so that's my quote unquote virtual day. Right. Um, and I phone about 70 people on a Monday. Those are how I keep follow-ups out of my waiting room and out of my practice. And I can see more of them by phone than I can in person. I find it exhausting and it requires a lot of multitasking. That is exhausting. Yeah. And I like, I have staff like set them up, make sure their family doctor is updated, make sure their pharmacy is updated. Then they hand them over to me. I know what, you know, once you have the diagnosis in person, which I still feel I can't make easily over the phone or photos. Once I have the diagnosis, I find the treatment algorithm flows a lot better. And Mm -hmm. sometimes you just want to check in. It's going well, all right, you're fine you know what i'll see you again if it flares and so you can kind of like not book them again or mm-hmm. what have you and so um it helps me just kind of tie a lot of bows on things that i'm managing or then know when i need to bring people back for procedures or for other things and so i do my phone calls on a monday i see people in person on tuesdays and thursdays and on those afternoons it's when i do procedures i find it really hard to do procedures mixed in in the day so if i'm doing anything surgical I just need to know that that waiting room isn't like piling up because right. I find that really stressful. And sometimes procedures are complicated. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes things bleed, or you know, they didn't quite turn out as expecting. expected. Yes. No, no. Um, so you know, anyhow. So I do those procedures at the end of the day, and then I tend to book Fridays for my uh, cosmetics. I think that has some challenges associated with it. People like it for a bunch of reasons, but it assumes some risk mm-hmm. because. Nobody is there on a Saturday if there's a complication. And so you have to have systems to kind of make sure that people can reach you Mm -hmm. if you're going to be doing um, riskier things on a Friday, for example. And so we have an answering service set up to kind of help us uh, make sure that people can get to us without me having to give out my personal cell phone number to patients. Um, so, you know, you just have to have, again, those good systems set up. And I think I'm reaching a place where the Fridays are not enough. Um, and so we're starting to kind of sneak people in at the beginning of the day or wherever. Mm-hmm. I, I think what's really tough, depending on how your waiting room is set up and stuff, I only have one waiting room. And I think patients who've been sitting there for those 30 minutes, like really don't like the idea of a cosmetic patient kind of waltzing through and maybe being seen more quickly. And I think the optics of that aren't, mm-hmm. aren't great. Yeah. So I think it's important to kind of manage that uh, yeah. appropriately, and you know, to to be able to kind of provide everybody with what you feel like is you know a good level of care.
1: Yeah, for sure, for sure. Before I, you know, take up your entire evening, I do uh, just want to take a little bit of time to talk. My about- my
0: kids are in bed, just to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> so, so like it's just you and so me.
1: So are mine for now. Uh, one of them could, could arrive at any given time. I do want to just, uh, talk a little bit about staffing, um, and some of the considerations around that. And so, okay, like different people obviously have different staffing requirements. You mentioned you recently hired a nurse. Who do you have working in your office?
0: So now I have sort of a secretary, a clinic coordinator, an esthetician, and a nurse. Okay. So four, four people. Um, when i started practicing i had a secretary mm-hmm. and it was just me and her and she was everything to me and <laughs> and then there's always this this challenge that if that one person is sick or yeah. can't come in you you know you can't function and Absolutely. um one of my sort of earlier memories of opening this practice was i I had decided I needed to let this person go for various reasons. Mm -hmm. And I thought I'd had a temp lined up. I thought I'd had this all figured out. And I had to talk to an HR lawyer because I didn't know how to let somebody go. That's like so awkward. And then I remember like the printer to print out the letter was right by her desk and not by my desk. And then I had to wait <laughs> for her to go to the bathroom to like send it to the printer. Then I had this letter, but I didn't have any envelopes. And so then I had to wait for her to go to the bathroom again to get an envelope to put it in. Like it was the worst day. Like it was so badly executed. It was so awkward. And I... Um, It was terrible. Anyway, so I (laughs) thought I had it all lined up with a temp to come in the next day. And the temp calls and is like, I got another job. So then I had nobody. And so I had this, you know, day booked of patients and nobody to help me. And so I called sort of, I don't know, a friend of a friend of a friend, had a neighbor who maybe had some time. And she kind of came in and like swiped health cards and put people in rooms. And it was... It was so um it was so challenging and I remember just thinking like how on earth did I get here? Like what did I do wrong yeah. to to be in this situation right now? Yeah. Um so you know, so anyhow, so then it was you know, within rapid succession I hired an esthetician. And again, it's just like cost. Like many people maybe they you know, if they've been practicing for a few years and they've generated a bit of revenue and they've decided they've got a bit of capital to spend on all these things and they're willing mm-hmm. to kind of take the loss while they Kind of ramp up their efficiency and their billings, and to support all those overhead uh, costs, you know, maybe they they would do it differently. But that's how I did it, and I uh, I rapidly then hired an esthetician because we bought our first laser. Okay. And That was like you know, um, uh, you know, you have to think about that and those choices. And so then there were two, you know, and that sort of you know made yes. it a little bit easier. And so uh, for me, the growth has been organic based on my needs. And uh, only recently have I found myself in a position to say, okay, look, I really need somebody else to do more day-to-day secretarial stuff. And my sort of longstanding secretary, um, uh, who has been a total gem, is the one that now is sort of running more coordinating my clinic. Okay. And so I think the functions people play certainly evolve as, um, as you grow. And also you, you realize kind of what their capacities and skills are. Uh, and they, everybody will have strengths and weaknesses in that department. And so having a nurse was this big luxury because now I have somebody that's like a clinical extender. Yes. And I think one of the great questions to ask anybody you work with is how do they use their clinical extenders? Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's a physician's assistant or a nurse, and you know, all kinds of levels of nurse like RPN, RN. Mm-hmm. You know, like how do you use them effectively in your clinic? So, is it that they do all your biopsies? Do you train them to do all that? Is it that they counsel about your biologics? Are they uh, calling patients about their pathology results? Right. Um, that there's also questions about billing, you know, depending on the province, sort of how you get remunerated for their time uh, spent with patients. So, I think there's a bunch to consider, and I think it varies by region, uh, yes. but having those elements in play, I think are essential sort of roles to fill the work at a clinic, a dermatology clinic.
1: Yeah. And to your, I think you made this point earlier, too, that, you know, depending on what you're doing, um, and what you can sort of afford from a capital perspective, or, you know, whatever, because certain things will pay for themselves. So, you know, initially upfront cost, you have a nurse or phototherapy machine. Um, but eventually with billing that can help to, to pay for itself and allow you to, you know, extend out, some other options. So, um, I think, and, and you can't, you made this point and I think it's very true. Well, you made it in a different way, but you really can't underestimate the help that you get from (laughs) the different people that work in your office and that they really allow you to do your job. Cause you know, (laughs) otherwise you're just, you're a doctor in a dermatoscope with uh, no way to. Do, at least I was the day you know a snow yeah. day or a sick day. I'm like, oh my goodness, don't leave me here. I I'd know. be writing down health card numbers, going, I hope I can deal with this later. Um, no, it
0: is. It's really stressful, and I think on the HR side, you know, there's is, this is the hardest part of the job for sure. Mm-hmm. And I would say my two pieces of advice on that are at least again, this is how I operate. If you don't think that person's a good fit, this is something my husband who did an MBA has taught me. Like, if you don't think that person's a good fit, like, just make that decision sooner rather than later. Like, it's better to have those bad conversations early on than wait to have them. Because it's really hard when you're like a year into that relationship and you're sort of like, oh, actually, I really wish I'd let you go. Like, that's a very hard thing to do a year into a relationship. So I'd say if you don't think it's the right fit on the outset, it probably isn't like, and you're probably not going to, not going to enjoy that. And I think things change as people get comfortable in their work environment and stuff and people learn and they can maybe, but if you don't think that person is going to be the right fit, just make that decision sooner rather than later. And I think they'll appreciate it too, because they can go grow in the right setting where they can thrive and be successful, you know, um, it, yeah. it may not, not. The the Durham environment is very particular, right? It's so mm-hmm. fast paced. You have to multitask. You want people to be efficient, and and fundamentally, you're paying all these people not to like employ them, but to help you. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, if they're not helping you, then it's not. What are you doing? It's not the right trade off. Yeah. Right. What are you doing? Like you're yeah. just going to kind of really bust yourself up to try to get everything done and. Yeah. Be, be burnt out. Like you'll burn out for sure. And I
1: think, you know, I, I, I can speak for myself. Maybe I can't speak for all of us, but I feel, you know, that the vast majority of physicians and dermatologists uh, don't have that business experience. They, you don't have those skills. Um, and so, you know, sometimes just avoiding those awkward things or think, well, you know, well they have the job and they their kid. And, you know, um, at least that for me, I found a bit of a challenge, um, that I hadn't been prepared for thinking about it like a business because you know, it is, and it's the, the business of healthcare, but at the same time there's all this, these extra layers that like I didn't feel prepared for, for sure.
0: And, and the buck stops with you as a physician. So like, again, if, if, if you have a staff that isn't necessarily that good at paying attention to details and something happens in that path like you have to be able to trust people. Yeah. Uh, and so you have to know what their skills are to be able to trust them Otherwise, you'll do everything. And so, um, yeah, it is. It is really hard. I'd say the HR is the hardest piece about it. I remember when I started, I'd asked friends, you know, oh, what contract did you use? You know, mm-hmm. do, are you going to hire your staff hourly or are you gonna salary them? And I think that's another one of those choose-your-own-religion yes. moments. Like, I don't <laughs> think there's a right answer. And there are incentives and disincentives to people for being hourly versus salaried. Mm-hmm. Um, and it depends if you're going to ask them work on weekends or in evenings or – Oh, uh, how much you're going to want them to kind of be a jack of all trades, but maybe a master of none, you know? Right. So how how are you going to use those people in your office, especially in those early days? I think a derm clinic at the beginning, the way I did it, was more like a startup than it was sort of like a company. <laughs> so was so kind fair. of lean. <laughs> fair.
1: So I was going to ask you, you know, just in, for general advice, uh, thinking about um, that human resource piece, like the contract, the payment, um, the legal side, uh, you know, what, do you have any just sort of general recommendations of like resources to use? Or do you think it's, do you think, you know, chatting with a bunch of people and saying, Oh, it seems like it might fit for me, um, is your best bet?
0: Um, no, I think it's, it's important (laughs)
1: to, (laughs) no, I'm like, don't go with your gut on this one, Carrie be official. Okay.
0: (laughs) Sorry. Yes. Well, we renovated our home and the contract I signed with our contractor, I thought, you yeah, know these are good guys. We'll just do it. I didn't have it reviewed by a lawyer. Okay. It would have cost like I don't know what fifteen hundred bucks to have it reviewed, maybe. Mm-hmm. And in the end, somewhere along the way, we ended up with a dispute, and then you had to deal with that dispute. And then you're like, "What's in that contract to deal <laughs> with did this I dispute?" Sign? Yeah, because I don't actually know. Because you never think of those things when you're signing it. Everything's like all goodwill, and mm-hmm. you know everyone's excited. But it's only when things don't work right you have to go back to those contracts. So the way they're set up is actually really important. And I've, I've done everything. I've gone to like mediocre HR lawyers. I've tried like a, like a paralegal. So, so in terms of, you know, seeking advice, I would say it's really important to have your contracts drafted and reviewed by a lawyer. I think trying to uh, save money on that will end up costing you more. If when there is a problem and you don't realize it and you look, you know, you, you won't know how to deal with that until the time comes unless you've had somebody really thoughtfully look through those contracts. And so I. I borrowed contracts from some friends that had used them uh, in their clinics. And then I didn't realize that like the vacation structure wasn't exactly what I wanted our vacation structure to be. Mm -hmm. And so um, the nuances of how those contracts are structured, I think are really important. I think there's some basic elements that all contracts have, but I think how you deal with uh, confidentiality disputes, I think it's important to get like, like real good legal advice on those contracts. And then, yes, you can... You can carry them forward, you know, uh, going forward, but it is important to do that. And then there's some other workplace stuff that you need some guidance on in terms of mandatory policies and a policy manual. And, you know, you'll see so many versions and iterations of that. There's operational stuff. And yes. then there's the government stuff. And so mm-hmm. kind of thinking through what are the different kind of things you have to have available to your staff um, to meet those employment standards. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, we we wouldn't expect a lawyer to uh, be able to be a dermatologist, and so I always think about it that way. Like, that's why I hire lawyers and accountants and investors, and (laughs) I do not possess any of those skills, so I leave it to the experts.
0: You know, and on the accounting piece, actually, I mean, that, again, it is definitely you know, province specific to a degree, but having, um, I, I went again in my philosophy of like, if it's not working, just end it right away. So I, I went through like four bookkeepers okay. before I found the firm I liked. And again, it was painful. And I remember mm. my husband sort of just being like, can we just stick with this accountant for like a few years and see how Stop it goes. But Okay. I know, I know. But now I've found ones that I really like, and I think it was worth, it was a lot of pain to do all that switch over bookkeeping and stuff. But I think having Again, depending on the kind of person you are, but having your bookkeeping and your accounting in sync will help you. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're running a practice, there are zillions of transactions and receipts to keep track of. And so how you set that up is really important. Um, I think it's really important that whoever is doing your bookkeeping should be on top of it every single month. Otherwise, yes. you will never be able to remember like what that check was that you deposited. or like It's really hard to track that stuff. And I think it's really important... For you, um, from a tax perspective, if you have some like a sophisticated accounting system, then how you think through HST in Ontario or other like provincial tax and other um, in other jurisdictions, like all that stuff is really important. And you may be you may be paying more than you kind of realize. And so there, are, it's it's uh, it's so exceedingly boring, but it's really important to do it right. And I think if it is boring, then you've done something right because it means it's kind of happening in a fairly seamless way and it's routine and reliable.
1: Yeah, you're right. There's so many different setups. And for me personally, I have people that do bookkeeping and investing um, and they have a direct um, relationship with my accounting firm. And so they do 95% of, everything um and then come to me from time to time which is exactly how i like it because i yeah. don't have the knowledge or my hands on but i think you know that that obviously varies from person to person now one last question and, just go, oh ahead. Yeah, go ahead go ahead
0: oh sorry you know i was just gonna say because this year we spent some time um there's how you set up a tax efficient practice corporation mm-hmm. personal taxes all of that stuff And a good accountant will be able to guide you on some of those pieces and the strategic tax side of things. And there's not like a zillion ways to do this, but there are some important ways to do it. So uh, that, that is important. But I think on top of that, I think we take for granted when we graduate uh, the piece around disability insurance and critical illness insurance and life insurance. And uh, I think that there are, in my experience, you know the Ontario Medical Association I sort of assumed this must be the best policy at the best price because it's the OMA for doctors by doctors I don't know what but it uh, <laughs> it turns out that a lot of the the vehicles that were available to us provincially are actually not very sophisticated from a financial perspective they're just not very sophisticated vehicles for disability right. yep. or for um office overhead expense insurance and uh So I think it's really important to speak to like a truly expert like insurance broker to kind of see what your options are um on all of those big metrics because suddenly you're out in practice and if you're going to buy a building you're going to need lots of life insurance (laughs) and you know there's like lots of uh things to kind of consider um and also you know people sometimes their families grow and like lots of complexity and costs and things you have to take care of and make sure you can kind of manage properly should something happen to you or you be unable to practice and i i think i uh, i didn't realize how limiting those policies were so I think it's really important to speak some like expert uh, expert advice on that I stuff. think
1: that's a really really important point and people don't talk about that and I myself I think was on the the OMA piece for the first few years of practice and then when my husband finished we met with our people who were now with and they were like whoa you're like uh you're, you're grossly underinsured for what you would need and so now you know we yeah. like our kids would be fine. Our practice would be taken care of. Our debts would be yeah. paid um, because they they took the time to get the right setup for each of us. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's the consideration I'm married to a surgeon. He has an own occupation rider. If he lost his hand, he can't operate. Exactly. But, uh, and so all those pieces, no, for sure. It's really
0: important. And I think the older you get, the more blood work you'll have to do to get this stuff sort of out. Get it so. as soon
1: as you can. <laughs> when you are as healthy as you are expected to be in life. I think that's probably like the most important uh, life advice on this whole podcast. I do want to ask just one more question before I, <laughs> before I release you Um, to just when it comes, just coming back to that HR piece. And so when you have a new hire or contract, do you tend to build in a probationary period um, or do you not do that?
0: I, I do do that. And I think it keeps, um, keeps the expectations between both parties uh, similar, mm-hmm. which is really important in those early days uh, because it's really hard to be, to give feedback um, when someone has a very uh, different sense of like where they are in right. your world <laughs> kind of thing. And so, uh, you know, I don't know, again, I've tried all kinds of models. Like I've tried trial days, see if we can get to know them a bit better, try try to bring somebody in on days when we're not busy so far, what I've experienced is for um, for certain staff, you just kind of like throw them into the fire and sort of see how they do. Good luck <laughs> uh, and how they step up, you yeah. know, because I think that's what I'm looking for in my practice. I'm looking for people that are going to step up to keep uh, to keep things moving, to uh, provide um, uh, professional sort of care and assistance to the patients that come through the place, and also. Uh, people who kind of care because if they care about my practice that's the other side of it it's not just about me it's I care for them and Mm -hmm. I this is sort of the kind of employer I want to be it's the kind of culture I want to build in my clinic and I think that's really important for people to reflect on sort of what what they're going to do like how are they gonna celebrate birthdays how are they going to are they gonna bonus their staff what are they gonna base that bonus structure on Mm -hmm. Uh, what performance metrics matter to them do they want to do it as an individual Is it gonna be as a group um, you know, like, how are you going to kind of reward your staff for giving their all when they're there and, uh, incentivizing them to do it. And, and it isn't all monetary. You can right. look at tons of business studies and case studies out of this, but it really isn't about monetary. Like people need to feel valued in their work. And, uh, and so it's really important that that relationship is positive. You know, I personally like wear it on my sleeve. So if it's not a good dynamic, unfortunately i I think people feel it so i think it's really important to kind of get the right fit you know on the outset try hard for that
1: yeah i think i think that's absolutely key and when you're building a team you want um you want to provide that feedback um and you know make it better so listen i'm sure we could talk uh probably for multiple hours on various details uh, but i think that was a really great overview and i want to really um thank you profusely for providing all of these insights and being so open um, about these considerations that we just really don't residents don't get a chance to hear so thank you for joining me and thank you for talking about all this stuff
0: it was incredible I feel like I was looking at a cheat sheet of things I had put together on this topic and uh, hoping that we could touch on uh, as many of them as possible and I think we did I think we really did it's nice to be able to do that knowledge translation for folks. I think what you're doing with this podcast is really important. I wish I'd certainly had that when I was starting up my own practice. So thank you. <laughs> Have a great night. You too. And thank you for listening. If
1: you enjoyed this, please give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. That's it for this episode of Dermalogs. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, I'm Dr. Carrie Purdy. Oh, mm-hmm. oh,